0: I'm at the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. This is the 32nd annual CCSAD hosted by C4 events. This is where I get my hands on the experts and the professionals in the field of addiction and mental health disorders so you can have more help more support more connection to the information that is going to bring your family back from the brink of destruction from these destructive habits these destructive patterns i'm aaron huey welcome to beyond risk and back you know i get to learn and hear new things constantly because of the people i get to be around not just at these conferences, but in my every, everyday life. I, I have Dr. Michael Barnes from the Foundry, which is in Colorado, it's in Steamboat uh, Springs, which is where my daughter uh, attended Colorado Mountain College. Oh, um, and of course I've been skiing up there because I'm from Colorado and I hate skiing. So, <laughs> but Steamboat Springs is really one of those beautiful Colorado towns. Um, I remember when the foundry opened, you know, uh, I, I told you we had an employee that went from us to the foundry, came back to us, and now works, I believe, in his most ideal job. Um, so, uh, Dr. Mike, we, we've been talking uh, off mic about Uh, trauma, trauma, family trauma. And right away, I was like, okay, good. This will be a show where we can talk about everybody in the family and the trauma that they've been through. And I mentioned a a concept like grandma went through the Holocaust and, you know, how that resonates through the family. And you said, yes, there's that, but there's another one. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's start right away on this other one that you talk about, because the moment you said it, I was blown backwards. I was like, oh my God, after all these years, I still, I, I haven't looked at that one close enough.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting. I did a research project when I was at Cedar and we were talking to, we talked to like 400 families. And one of the questions we asked is living with, tra- with an actively using addict traumatizing. Well, 95% of the families said it was extremely traumatizing and about 5% said that it was traumatizing. So from the experience of family members, Being with someone who is as out of control as someone in active addiction is certainly perceived to be traumatic and one of the things that i've studied is what i call systemic trauma not just post traumatic stress disorder but the idea that the family has been placed into such um, disarray such fear such uncertainty that everyone in the system is traumatized and it's really clear that um, parents will often show the exact same symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder that their loved one who may have been significantly traumatized, intrusive thoughts, uh, avoidance of emotion, uh, control, hypervigilance, sleep disturbance, um, you know, you just go on and on and go through the d- the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, and you talk to parents and say, are there ever times where you're sitting at your computer at work and you should be doing work as appropriate, and you just can't get your loved one out of your head and you're wondering what they're doing. and Intrusive thoughts, just like any other traumatized... Obsessive thoughts. Obsessive thoughts. Um, Nightmares, dreaming about the kid, dreaming uh, about... Did they get to that meeting today? Did they go to... Did they take their medicine today? And so... um, um, You know, (laughs) I always talk... I always make the joke about telling family members to stop enabling is like Nancy Reagan telling an addict to just say no. Just say no.
0: It's... It doesn't work like that.
1: Unless you're going to teach someone some new skills on how to do that, then it's probably that's that's an inappropriate response.
0: You gave you gave a, a just a brilliant example where you said you know it's the end of the month. You know, you know, uh, walking in the door of the house that your child, and maybe they're younger, maybe they're an adult child, meaning they're over 18, but their mentality is still that of a 14 year old, because that's when they started using, um, is gonna ask you for money. And so you stress about it, you get a little sweat, you get nervous, you don't wanna go home, you avoid going to your own house, you start walking on eggshells with phone calls, they call you on the phone, your heart rate goes up. Nobody is seeming to consider that all those are trauma responses.
1: (laughs) It's the exact same somatic response for the family member who's trying to decide, am I going to take the risk to not enable, to say no, and then have to deal with the anger and the frustration, and to whatever degree that loved one is going to go to to get what they need.
0: Talk about what somatic means for my parents.
1: So body-based response, that the limbic system of our brain is the part of our brain that actually determines what's safe.
0: The survival
1: brain. The survival brain. And anytime we experience that threat, it activates the sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight or flight response. And so as that mother is watching their loved one walk down the hall and she knows he's gonna ask for something that she's not supposed to give him, her heart will start to race, Her her chest will get tight, her throat will start to close a little bit. And she'll immediately start to think, I know I should say no, but it's too scary to say no.
0: And and it's comfortable to say yes, because now you know, maybe you're 28-year-old, you're 50-year-old, 22-year-old, uh, a child is going to go out, uh, get their fix, come home and shoot in the basement. And you're like, well, at least they're here. Mm-hmm. And, and I had Dr. Katie Parker say, all you're doing is providing a comfortable place for them to die. And, but, but that is f- still more familiar and more comfortable than the unknown of what happens if they use it outside. And that's no different than a person who will stay with, a, with an abusive partner because it's known. The patterns are familiar. The The household is conditioned and habituated, which is what addiction is. <laughs> and it's easier to choose the habit than it is to choose the unknown.
1: So I always use an example of a like a mobile over a baby's crib and how the the, you know, how it's always fighting to stay balanced. And if you hit one, the whole system activates. Oh, wow. And the idea of when I ask family members, how long does it take for you to determine when your loved one walks in the front door of your house, whether they're intoxicated or not? The average answer is two seconds. And the idea of that's defined, that's the definition of hypervigilance. Yeah. That, and which I is f- a trauma response. Which is a trauma response. And then I say, do you have a button on the side of your house of activate the intoxication protocol so that everyone knows what to do? And they look at me and say, well, of course not. I said, then how does everyone know what to do? Trauma response. Trauma response. That Everyone is so hypervigilant to the reaction of every other person in that house that one person's going to go to their room, another person's going to go
0: protect mom, another person's going to look if if this this is amazing because in every episode we're talking about how the whole family needs treatment the whole family needs recovery and you can still hear the parents voice in the head saying i'm fine if they would just stop then we could get we could be happy and and when we teach our parents at fire mountain it's always the the moment you say if they then i then <laughs> then we're set. we're setting everything up for failure that's an expectation expectations cause suffering and and but But back to the point, every episode of Beyond Risk and Back, we're saying the whole family needs treatment, the whole family needs treatment. You've just revealed why. It's because the whole family is traumatized and people still are trying to figure out what trauma actually is. Mm -hmm. And, And if we put this on, if you're a little kid and it's three in the morning and you hear the car door slam and you know your parent is drunk, there's no... you know, protocol button on the side of the house, but everybody knows what to do. Everyone knows exactly what to do.
1: I once had a client who said when I was um, like nine years old, when, when my dad would walk in the front door of the house, I had three scenarios. If he was really intoxicated, I had to grab my little brother and my little sister and get to a neighbor's house. If he was moderately intoxicated, I would take them upstairs. If he was sober, we could stay downstairs and hang out. And I said, did your mom teach you that? He said, no, no, no. She had far more bigger problems to deal with. That was what I knew was the role that I had to play in that family. It was unspoken and it was habituated. And he was nine? He was nine years old.
0: Okay. So, so how does this play out for families? Let's 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 go through scenarios that my audience is going to recognize as, oh my God, that's going on in my house. I'm, I know we've already uncovered some. Um, one I like to use is middle of the day, um, you're at home running your business, right? You got a, you got a home-based business that's going on phone rings, heart rate goes up because you know, it's the school, your kid's been, and it may, it could, could be a salesman wanting to buy, send you some sure. new client management software, Absolutely, but, but that's a trauma response. What else are we talking about?
1: Oh, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, as a family therapist, I look at three generation assessment, I want to know number 1 how much trauma have the parents had and so sometimes um if i had trauma as a childhood as a parent so i have a son that was hit by a car when he was 5 he's t- 32 he's you did this actually I, happened this to is, this is this is my oh story. my gosh and he's he's fine
0: Thank god
1: but at the time he he was never supposed to you know live that was like a really he was in intensive care for three weeks, and then the hospital for a month, and then body casts. And it was really the beginning of my research into well, what happens to traumatized families. And what we find is, is that that event, you know, the, the diagnostic manual that we use for making this diagnosis says experiencing an event, witnessing an event, or learning about the event of a loved one, they're all just as likely to cause post-traumatic stress disorder, or at least post-traumatic stress response. The you said
0: experience, points. witnessing, and what? Learning about. Learning. Okay, thank you. So my son was hit. My wife
1: watched it. I learned about it. Three very different situations. And all three are? All three experienced clear symptoms of post-traumatic stress. So what we also know and my work with veterans uh, when I was younger in my career was childhood traumas made combat traumas in many cases more accentuated and more difficult. And so that idea of if I was an enabler of my parent who was an alcoholic or was, uh, was an addict, am I more likely to be an enabler of my children who developed this? Um, our research would say, yeah. So the idea of looking at well how much trauma have I had in my life as I'm trying to work with my son, daughter, loved one with addiction, and how has that impacted my ability to say no when I mean no and yes when I mean yes?
0: You just brought something up that, that has me puzzling about something. Mm -hmm. And then as you talked about, you know, a child who has an adult parent, that is an alcoholic, that there's enabling behaviors that take place. I, I mean, again, this is not something that we consider, but if a child has no power in the situation and, and now that I have just said that out loud, I, I don't know what to make of that. What do you mean by child enabling, like like it, uh, being a child enabler?
1: So I hear stories all the time about um, that people will tell me when I was a kid, the first thing I did when I walked out of my bedroom was to look to make sure that everything was okay, that my mom was okay, my dad was okay, whoever the identified patient of that family was. And if they were fine, then I could go about my business. And if they weren't fine, then I had to go do something to make the situation better. And so, um, enabling or caretaking. So, you know, w- when you think about doing trauma based addiction treatment, we used to focus primarily on PTSD. Sure. Today, I don't. I focus primarily on developmental trauma the idea of growing up in a family system where there were multiple traumas or some kind of trauma. And it's interesting. Anytime a client ever says to me, how can, it, how can this be a genetic disease when neither of my parents were addicted? My first question is always, well, which one of your grandparents was addicted? Oh, my, my mom's dad was an alcoholic. Okay, well, how about your dad? Well, yeah, I mean, his, his dad had you know, depression and mental health issues. And the idea that when you talked about transgenerational trauma yeah. from a you know, Holocaust scenario, there are very clear biological patterns that, that move from one generation to the next. We start looking at the concept as epigenetics. And the idea is, how does the environment w- that we live in, the stress level that we live in on a daily basis, impact how our genes either activate or don't activate? And so there's research looking at kids who grew up in families that were highly traumatized uh, being born with these proteins that, that actually prevent them from being able to manage their emotions uh, very well. And the, it used to be that we thought that that was always transmitted through the egg, and now that there's research that says that even that's that could be transmitted through the sperm. So there is a very clear
0: transgenerational
1: component to this.
0: I, so so what's striking me is that you are broadening the concept of enabling to, and I, and I wrote a, like a definition down. I just want to bounce it off you mm-hmm. because, I, because I hadn't considered it. Enabling always insinuates it. It's something that you do. Now that's, that remains true, but what sure. we're actually saying is something that you do consciously. And and what I'm hearing from you is that we're, we're things that we consciously or subconsciously do that maintains the status quo. Mm-hmm. We may not be doing them on purpose, No especially as a child you come out and check right and left and check the household and make sure you don't make noise because it'll wake up your father who's gonna be in a bad state because he just showed up at 4 a.m drunk and we're walking on eggshells walking on eggshells is enabling behavior it allows things to continue now we don't have expectations of a child to change things and how does a grandchild change the trauma that has trickled down from grandma who went through the Holocaust? Who, you know, with the attitudes, even even just the, the grandchild wants to get tattoos, where where for a Jewish Holocaust sure. survivor, that's that's not that's yeah. not an idea to to follow through on. Mm-hmm. So how how do we as a family system g- just begin to recognize the 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 subconscious, the the non, the not on purpose enabling behaviors. Well, I you know I think one of the things is like
1: just basic awareness of like, so I think education is really important. Sure. And so um, it's always interesting when you start talking about trauma with families, it's like, yeah, I want to learn about the trauma that my loved one has had so that we can help them get better. Right. Let's talk about the trauma. So I, I always start with that trauma because then I can slide <laughs> around and say, <laughs> now let's talk about your trauma yeah. and, and that idea. So as a family therapist, I know that one of three things is going to happen when someone changes. Either the system is going to change with them and there's going to be family healing, which requires the family, the the adults in the room, the siblings to say, you know, my brother's a an addict, but you know, I've been impacted by that. And just being able to say it. Just being able to say it and admit that, wow, you know, I, I do enable. And it's really terrifying. Like I've you know, how many families say to you, Well, what if they die? Right. And say, well, they're not dead; they're alive now. Now's your opportunity. And so, if the family can get past, that person needs to get sober, so we can be normal. To in order for us to be normal, a new normal. There's no going back. There's only going forward. That we need to change too. I need to begin to recognize how I my fear response is what motivates me to say yes when I really mean no
0: there's a lot of guilt and shame as I'm, as I'm, as I'm thinking about talking to my families at the next parent weekend about how everybody's traumatized. And I have this scenario built out in my head now that in my opinion is brilliant, but everything I think is brilliant. (laughs) But, but where I say, what's it been like with your kids using running away, cutting themselves and write down their symptoms and then read the DSM uh, of the criteria for PTSD and let them see it themselves that everybody in the room is traumatized. Um, but now, now blame and shame. Now, now I'm looking at my identified patient that I've been enabling through soft behaviors, through not having boundaries for that. Now I'm pissed at him. I mean, you know, we sure, we sure. have parents who are who are angry. They feel so much relief that their kids, at the foundry, that that they're their 19 year olds going through the foundry. And God, at least I know they're safe and they're they're getting therapy and they're getting help. But then you come along, doctor, and tell them that the whole family's traumatized by. Johnny's behavior. Mm -hmm. And now I have some resentment towards Johnny and Johnny starts to feel guilty. Like, how does this spiral come to an end? Well, I think, so in my
1: presentation tomorrow, I'm gonna talk about how, uh, I once had a student that said, what's it like to work with an unmotivated client? And I said, I I wouldn't know, I've never worked with an unmotivated client. Most of my clients are pretty highly motivated to stay the same. And the idea that we are hardwired from the time that we're born until we are the day we are today, and that that hardwiring, those that nervous system development, is that if I can get families to just begin to look at, so how am I wired? Why do I do the things I do? That it's not about blame. It's about experience, and it's about ownership, and it's about love, and the willingness to say, I'm willing to work on getting better too. Because I know that if my... Loved one is the only one that has to do this. The message that I'm sending is you're sick and I'm not. And so that idea of how do we get the entire family to begin to take ownership in a healing process? And so if the family does that, that young person is far more likely to get sober than if they're the identified patient and everyone else stays the same.
0: Does does the whole family have to admit they're sick before the whole family can heal? I mean, those are, those are deep terms, sick and healed. So
1: I don't think that the whole family has to, initially. I think that there are certain people who hold places of power in that system who have to be willing to challenge the status quo by taking ownership and saying, I don't know about the rest of you, but I am beginning to recognize the role that I play. Not the role that I play in them using or not using, per se, but the role that I play in how we as a family deal with our emotions how we can either speak honestly or, or not honestly. Right. And so um, there's an old family therapy kind of concept that I call the five R's that the rules that the family operates by, the roles that each person plays, the routines that they engage in, the relationships and boundaries that they, that those are the things that come from my family and my partner's family, and we come together and we develop a new set that we're going to parent our kids by. If my family was a traumatized, addicted family, and those are the rules that we've kind of adapted to in order to live with our family member's addiction, I'm probably going to bring some of those in with me. And so that idea of being willing to step back and look at,
0: what role does all of this begin to play? I mean, we're talking about teaching a whole family how to communicate with a level of emotional intelligence that none of us were taught unless you have a degree in therapy <laughs> and well, even then you can struggle to use it when you're upset we haven't even
1: begun to talk about attachment and oh my where, where all of that comes into play another
0: show another show another yeah, show
1: and that's the idea of if my parents were both traumatized and they did the best they could to teach me how to manage my emotions And there's a whole biological component to this that we don't have time to even begin to get to then you know me getting sober isn't going to change their ability to be connected to me and so the family that's willing to say wow this is really important and i love you and i really want us to have a relationship so maybe i need to be willing to look at some of my stuff too not in a blaming way but in a loving and growing and healing way right that that's when that's why i say if one person in that family other than the addicted individual begins to say I have to do this differently. that is far more likely that other members are going to do that too. We don't have to wait till everybody is willing to you know engage in that
0: process and there's a balance between everybody engaging in the process and one person finally uh, conceding to the family wishes, going to make a great change, come back, and the family subconsciously pulls the person into old behaviors because their new behaviors are so unfamiliar, it unroots everybody and charges up their survival uh, uh, instincts. Wait, this person's different. This is this, they're not fitting into the status quo. Well, think about it. So if I asked the same family
1: that I asked, how long does it take to tell if your loved one's intoxicated or not, If I say, well, your loved one's been in treatment, they're sober for two, two and a half years, you haven't seen them in six months because they've been off to school or doing whatever they're doing, how long does it take for you to determine whether your loved one's intoxicated or not when they walk in the front door for the first time? The answer's the same. Sure. Two seconds. Sure. And so I will often (laughs) say, if I'm the person in recovery and I've been busting my tail to be sober and to work on my issues and I walk in the house and you still start treating me the same way you've oh, always treated me. God, yes. That's not my problem. That's your problem. And I have to make a decision that if I have to play by those roles, when I come back in that house, the dis ease that I will experience, I will either need to relapse in order to fit into that role, or I will need to abandon that family for periods of time.
0: I always say that the, uh, are you know you you can be the wisest understanding uh, most amazing knowledgeable person on human behavior until you're back around your parents and then you're 14 years old again and what you, what you just said is is so important to say the person will go back so that they can fit in. Mm-hmm. If you don't as a parent change, look, we're going to call this show. That's not my problem. That's your problem. Because, because we're, we're liter- that is the thing that keeps us from dealing with our problems mm-hmm. is by continually saying that's your problem. And it's also something that an addict can very easily say to the whole family. That's not my problem. That's your problem. That's amazing. Doctor, talk about the foundry for a minute, just so that we can make sure as we wrap up here that people know how to get their loved ones into the foundry. Uh, And just real quick, because I want to remember, you guys are men only now. Is that correct? We're men only. Okay.
1: When I first got there, we were co-ed. Co-ed.
0: I remember it being co-ed.
1: And um, to do the kind and depth of trauma work that we believe is necessary, we had to make a decision. And the decision was we, we need to be gender responsive which means we're either going to work with men or women, and we're going to do it in a specific way. So we decided to work with men. And uh, so we're a 14-bed residential program uh, on a 48-acre ranch s- about seven miles south of Steamboat Springs. You
0: guys are up the road towards Strawberry Springs. Not the other way. Oh, it's the other way. We're it's south. Way. We're heading towards Vail. Do you guys use Strawberry Springs? Oh, my yeah. God. Are you kidding me? That yeah. place is one of the best it's places. pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: we have a partial hospital program where the clients kind of live in the steamboat and then uh, come out to what we call the ranch, right, which is right, our right. residential facility. Uh, we are trauma integrated. Um, and what that really means to us is the ability not necessarily to work on the trauma story, right, but to work on the trauma symptoms in a way that prevent the, the person from actually dealing with their addiction. So if my nervous system ramps up every time I feel threat, It's not always a trauma threat sometimes it's the threat of being ashamed ashamed of myself for the things that i did in my addiction so so often we find that working just on the basic addiction issues trigger trauma response which sends person into fight or flight which means their brain parts of the brain turn off and they're not going to remember what we did anyway so we're Mm -hmm. very attuned to the idea of keeping that brain operating the way we want it to
0: you know so. I, I don't jump on i don't jump on the bandwagon of uh, of a lot of adult facilities because hey there's a lot of adult facilities but you guys are still the new kids on the block which means you're five years old now four four just, years just old turn, now. we'll
1: turn four this we, september this
0: september but i know the foundry i know um staff members who've worked there who have come back to work for me you guys do good work up there so you. you know families if you have if you have a uh, eighteen and up uh, yes. uh, uh, son, a uh, 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 husband, a father who's who's struggling with addiction, mental health issues, you need to check in with the Foundry because uh, yeah, people like Dr. Barnes are there. This is this is a good program, and I mean that sincerely. We I watch you guys from afar, um, not so far because I'm right there in yeah, Estes Park. Yeah. So hey, I, if far. I can throw a rock that far, I can hit you but uh thank you there's there's i talk to a lot of experts and and i find a few times that i my mouth hits the table and i think it did like eight times on your podcast and and quite frankly there's some things i'm going to plagiarize and steal from you at my next parents weekend please do (laughs) dr barnes thank you so much for your time thanks for being on beyond risk and back yeah thanks for having me on this has been another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, coming to you from the 32nd Annual CCSAD. That's the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. Thank you to C4 Events for having me here. I also want to thank Dylan at Deepin Productions. Dylan does my sound engineering. He also does the music for Beyond Risk and Back. So if you need to get in touch with Dylan, go to deepinproductions at gmail.com. That's D-E-E-P-E-N productions at gmail.com. If you've seen anything about Beyond Risk and Back on social media, you can thank Your Cause Consulting. To get in touch with Your Cause Consulting to handle your marketing needs, go to info at yourcauseconsulting.com and send them an email. Thanks so much for listening, parents. Remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third. Because in that way, we do our best work with our children. This has been Aaron Huey, and I will talk to you soon.